0: thought about speaking for four weeks in a row. I was thinking about the paradoxes of redemption. Those those things in scripture that really turn our view of life and our world upside down from what the world system is. The weakness and strength and and um, humility and power and some of those things. And we opened up with, with the idea that weakness is strength out of 2 Corinthians 12. When I am weak, then I am strong for... Christ's strength is made perfect in weakness. And those are, that's an important concept. I mean, to, to understand that strength is, is, uh, of God is, is manifest when we're weak. But it doesn't really give us an, an opportunity to say, well, so how do I appropriate that? to know something doesn't necessarily give us the tools to to make that true in our lives. how do we understand a theological truth, a profound truth, an axiom of scripture that God's strength is perfected in our weakness how do we make that real? We go through life and, and um, you know the, the plans that we have and we, we, we draw them out we write them out and then and then life interrupts them somehow uh, through some obstacle or or, or some um, breakup of a relationship, or uh, bad news from a doctor, or, or something happens. And, and we're, we're, we're faced with this question. And so we opened up and said, well, you know, the, the second week, looking at the life of Peter, uh, what, does it, what does it look like when we, when we have this weakness of insufficiency we don't feel sufficient and to be able to serve Christ. We don't feel like we have the spiritual fortitude and, and we don't feel worthy and our love isn't, isn't deep enough and we want to write out plans for our own life and it didn't include being a, a point person in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and it didn't include this or that and so for Peter it certainly and, and, um, and Jesus reminded him, what is that to you? You follow me. That somehow the strength of Christ is is made apparent in the midst of our weakness when we choose to follow Christ. and then then last week we looked at what happens when we don't understand theologically everything. We don't understand the truths that, that we must eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood to have eternal life. and what is that I don't understand that. what does that look like? And so we have this mental weakness, and we looked at the that the result is, is, is faith and then ultimately the, the passage that Brett shared even uh, this morning to whom shall we turn you Lord have the words of eternal life we've come to know and believe that you are the son of the most high God and, um, and we realize that in the, in the case of, of mental weakness or the inability to cognitively understand the truths of God God calls us to believe anyway You rest your faith upon what's revealed in my word. So today I want to take the last step in this journey of understanding the the paradox of weakness. The paradox of redemption as as it plays out in weakness. And, And I want to look at a passage in the Old Testament. Because I believe there it answers the four most basic questions we have, especially during the times when things aren't going well in our lives. The times when we want to hit the panic button and say, you know what, I'm not sure where God is in the midst of all of this. How do I take the promises of God in a, in a real practical way and make them work for my life? Isn't that the question we all have, ultimately? We could spend our time studying scripture, and I've spent years doing it, and, and, and teaching scripture. And I've spent decades doing that. But there still comes times when, when those theological concepts seem so divorced from my experience in reality. I, I can't appropriate that. How do, we, how, do we, how do we frame weakness? How do we find the power of God in a practical way? And so today I want to conclude in a very practical way, a, a very simple passage of Scripture. In fact, it's, it's, it's so simple, it's so profound in Isaiah 43. And the, if you'd open your Bibles there, we're going to look at just really in depth a couple verses. We're not going to be having this expansive narration. But Isaiah chapter 40 hits square in the eyes the idea of where is God? Where is God when things are upside down in my world that I live in and in my personal life? How do I appropriate the, the, the power and the presence of God's hand? How do I make it real? How do I take things from the pages of Scripture and put them in the tablet of my heart? How do I find out where to, where to get this power from? And um, in this passage in Isaiah 43, I'm going to read it. And, and it's probably going to go like, hmm, wonder where this is going. But listen to this. But now, thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, Who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt For your ransom, Ethiopia, and Seba in your place, since you were precious in my sight. You have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. In Isaiah 43, Isaiah records the words of, of the Lord, of Yahweh, the Father, in, in, in declaring his covenant relationship with Israel. This is God's promise to a nation and, and I say that by way of clarification. Hold with me for a second. When we read Scripture, we really have to understand who is the targeted audience that they're speaking to. Is it to individual believers? Is it to a nation? Is it to a, a, a country that that God is going to judge? Who who is the audience of this? The audience of this he he identifies very very at the very first of, of verse one. It is to Jacob and Israel, which are the same. Jacob, the the denier, and Israel, God's covenant people. And those terms are used interchangeably. In fact, it's used 13 times just within a section here. Jacob first and then Israel, showing God's covenant relationship with a group of people who don't live like they should, but he loves them like he always loves them. We should be leaning forward in our seats right now thinking, that's kind of where we are in this country here. We may not be living the way we should, but God's still proclaiming his love for us as believers. And, um, and, and we have to be careful of understanding. This is a promise between God and Israel. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the principles that we read here don't apply to us. This is showing the heart of God for his people. This is showing God's love in the midst of a people who were rebellious who are turning their backs against God, away from God, is still showing his covenant love toward them. That I am committed to uphold my end of the deal, where I pledge myself to you, I love you because I love you. And that's God's view. He loves us because he sent his son to die for us. He proved that love by sending his son to die on the cross and raising again. The God that we can put our trust and faith in and have the gift of eternal life. Have the hope for the guarantee of tomorrow and the hope for today. And um, we see that proclaimed in this passage as well. And so really, the promises that are given here are to believers. They are to God's people. This is showing the nature of God and how much he loves us and cares for us. Even, even when things are not going well. And so I told you that, that in this, in the first verse here... God addresses the answers, he gives us the answers to the four most basic questions to humankind. They're four questions you wake up with every day and want answers to, and so does everyone else. They're four questions that, by whom we, we oftentimes seek the answers outside of Scripture to find, to find the, the solutions to them. And, and God gives us the answer right here. And here's the four questions. Who am I? Am I valued? Am I known? And am I needed? Really, they're all identity questions. We have those fundamental questions as humans. We have this innate design desire to know who we are and whether we have value, where we fit in. Um, are, Are we known? Does somebody know or care that we exist? And, and does my life have meaning or purpose? Am I needed? Am I wanted? You know those are the four most basic questions humanity has? The four questions in your family or, or in the community people wake up with and, and they go throughout their day wanting to know the answers to those questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How did I get here? Where am I going? And uh, do I have value? Do I have worth? Those are all identity-related questions it's interesting that God in dealing with the people that he has a covenant love for he gives them the answer to those questions in verse one and I have those written out for you on your worksheets and and this and number one this is it that God's listen to me God's promise to you God's promise to you is greater than any problems we could face in this life that the promise God gives you, when you set it beside anything you're going through in life, that promise is so much greater, it is so much larger, that the perspective that we have on that, on that problem begins to shrink. Oftentimes we think our problems are huge. Wow, I've got an insurmountable problem. I've got this going on, this going on, this going on, this going on. And there doesn't seem to be any conclusions or any way forward with those problems. But when we set the promise of God next to that, and this is the point I making, when we set the promises of God next to the problem, what happens to the problem? It just shrinks. Because the promises of God are so powerful and so large. Listen, this should be giving us a, a, a step forward. When I am facing trials in life, when I am facing questions that I don't have answers for, what do I need to do? I need to set the promises of God right next to those and put them in perspective. The promises of God always give us perspective on the things we go through. And listen, we see that continuously in Scripture. We could go to hundreds of verses and see that where God says, In the midst of what you're, what you're, um, what you're going through, I want you to trust. I want you to believe. I want you to have faith. We talked about that in our Sunday school class today. That that's what God is looking for. We talked about that last week in, in John 6. I don't understand what it means to eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood. I have a lack of understanding. I have a lack of the cognitive ability to understand what's going on. God says, trust, believe, rest in me. Because your inadequacy pales when you sit it next to the promises of God. Peter I'm a horrible fisherman and I don't have love for you. Stop and, and, and believe me and trust me and serve me and step out. When you do, the problems shrink and the power of God comes. And so this is how we appropriate strength during weakness. We set the promises of God right next to it. Listen to his, listen to his response here. Verse 40, or Chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord who, what? Created you. He created you. Where did I, where did I come from? I, the Lord says, I made you. I made you. He uses, uses the word bara. It is the same Hebrew word that's used all through Genesis chapter 1. When God created the heavens the earth and God formed man. In fact, turn back to Genesis 1 for just a second. I'm going to throw this in free today. Um, In Genesis chapter 1, one of the foundational verses in this, in, in scripture, is found in verses 26 through 28. This is on the sixth day of creation. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let man, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over a living thing that moves on the earth. And the rest of Scripture is bearing out the consequences of departing from God's plan and sin entering in and God's remedy for that a redemptive work through Christ. And man's attempt to find significance and acceptance and meaning and identity in life. And God, in the very beginning, endowed us with it when he created us. And so when you set the problems you have next to the promises of God, like, okay, so I'm going through difficulty. Who am I? Does my life matter? Do I have value? Do I have worth? And God says, listen, I have created you, O Jacob. I have formed you, O Israel. You are a creation of mine. And he says the same thing to you and to me. Bask in that truth for just a second. The very God of the universe has formed you and created you. He has endowed you with the image of God, the Imago Dei. You have identity with the living God. He has has created you in his likeness, in his image. That's not true of anything else in creation, just you. If you struggle for self-worth, I want you to understand this. That that the Lord God has formed you and created you. Who am I? I'll tell you who you are. You are created in the image of God. That's who you are. Self-worth and inadequacy die when we begin to understand that you are a distinct creation of God on this earth. You have purpose, intrinsic value. You're valuable because God says you're valuable, not because of what you do or how you conform or how you perform or all the other things that society puts on you, how you look, how much money, all these other things. That has no bearing on your value. You are valuable because God says you're valuable. You're created in his image and his likeness. God has positioned us for success. Why? Because he created us in his image. And we have to go back and we have to set that intrinsic truth next to the problems that we're facing. We have to say, so how does that compare now? And that problem begins to shrink next to the promises of God. God gives us those answers to the four most basic questions. I have made you. And if God has made you, you have value. Friends, you have worth. You have enough value and worth and God loves you so much that he'd be willing to go and send his only son to die for you he proved it and scripture says that but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners what Christ died for us Romans 5 8 we see that God God demonstrates that love toward us and he he and it's not to be surprising that he says that to Israel in the face of difficulty, in the face of troubles, even troubles that they, that they brought on themselves. And by the way, there were some of those people in Israel, they were faithful. They were seeking Yahweh. They were worshiping. They, were, they had hearts inclined to God. They were obeying. And yet they were still suffering the consequences of choices other people made. Listen, I work every day with young people that are suffering the consequences of choices that other people made for them. Other people made to hurt them, to abuse them, or to malign them, to to abandon them, or whatever it is. And they're still suffering the consequences of choices somebody else made for them. What's the solution? The solution is to understand that my value of my life isn't dependent upon what somebody else says. It's dependent upon what God says. We have to believe that truth or we're constantly going to be able to try to meet the the opinions of other people or meet some standard that's always evolving and always changing. Friend, the standard is met and it's met in Christ and it's met in the image of God, the imago Dei that God stamped upon your life. Your life matters. It has value and that has no bearing on the choices you make for yourself or other people have made for you. And God reminds them of that. He's taking them right back. He's taking right back to the day of creation, to the sixth day, and said, listen, I have formed you, I have created you. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. The first question, um, who am I, was answered by God saying, I made you. The second question is, am I valued? Am I valued? And he says, I have redeemed you fear not for i have redeemed you and this is really god saying not only did i make you but redemption is the idea of being purchased at a cost now we understand that for the new testament believer the purchase price was the blood of christ the blood of christ was shed that was the cost for the payment of sin jesus willingly shed his blood to redeem us to provide the payment in full, to be purchased. In redemption, the New Testament has the idea, um, ek agarazzo means to be purchased out of the marketplace, to be a possession of God, never to be sold again. Think about that. You're buying something or purchasing something, and you say, when I buy this, I will never sell it. There's no price that could be paid to, to, to sell this again. And that's what God says about you. In Christ, he has redeemed you. You've been purchased out of the slave market, the slavery to sin, and you've been put in God's economy in association and relationship with Christ, never to be sold again. When you talk about security, and this is is value. This answers the question, do I have value? We all want to know that our life matters, that we have value. Again, everyone does. And God answers the, answers the question that they never even asked. Do you want a motivation for enduring trials? I mean, trials have a way of thinking, you know, I must not be too valuable. Because if I was, you know, I wouldn't be going through this. And yet, and yet God says, no, the redemption, the redemption that I've shown you is, is proof that you have value. Regardless of the experiences that are going on. This is a promise of God. This is what this is. Isaiah 43, 1 is God's promise. You are created, I made you, and you are valued. I have redeemed you. Thirdly, in verse 1, he says, I have called you by your name. What a beautiful reminder. What a beautiful reminder to the nation of Israel. And God calls us by our name as well. We are his children and he calls us by name. God knows our name. You know, Isaiah forty nine fifteen. just a couple verses to your, few verses to your right. You know, he reminds the Israelites, you know, can a nursing mother forget her child? Um, yeah, it's possible, I suppose. But I will never forget you. I have you inscribed in the palms of my hands. There's God remembering. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Think about that. Those are God's promises to you. In the face of a trial, what happens to the size of your problem when you believe? You know what? I have, I have, um, I am valued. Uh, I am, I am uh, known. I'm created by God. And, uh, and God knows my name. He, he absolutely knows who I am. One of the most common things that I come across in counseling people is, you know, I'm really just trying to understand who I am. I, I really want to find out and discover who I am. What is my real identity? And, and oftentimes we, we, we try to look through, like, personality things, like, oh, I'm this type of a person. I'm an extrovert or an introvert. And, and those seem to be, you know, somewhat helpful in identifying certain aspects of our lives. But I can tell you what. Those things are, 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 are never set, they're always in flux, they're always changing. They're changing based upon how we feel, the experiences we had, whether people say, you know, how we're doing in school or whatever else may be. We have to go back. We have to go back to a foundation that doesn't change. We need a trustworthy source to point into our lives and say, you know what, this is who you are. This is who you truly are. And this is what God is doing in Isaiah 43. In the midst of national turmoil, they needed to know that their names have not been forgotten. There are so many people that feel alone in this life because of, you know, sacrificing friendships or relationships or or something's not going that well for them. And, and, And again, God is reminding, listen, my relationship with you doesn't change based upon the things going in your life. I still know you. And so again, when we're suffering trials, we're going through temptations or difficulties, we have to set the promises of God next to that. Ask yourself this. How does this compare to what God says about me? And then you tell me whether that problem is growing or shrinking. Because you know it's going to shrink. It has to next to the promises of God. We have to continually be fed and to be hearing those promises to believe them. The, the word of God is, you know, the Christian life is not bliss. When it, when it comes to the knowledge of God's word, we have to know the word of God to appropriate those promises. We have to understand. And it doesn't mean we have to know the Hebrew and the Greek and all the things. We have to be able to read the Word of God or hear the Word of God to be receptive to listen to it from other people, from our parents, from trusted friends or confidants, people who are going to share truth with us. In the times we cannot see or navigate our own way, we have to rely upon something or someone. And, and that's really the question Jesus asked to his disciples. You want to go too? You want to leave? And Peter, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Who do you want to go? To the world? To the encyclopedias? To the internet? Wherever? You'll get a variety of opinions. Here you'll receive truth from, from God's word. You're not a stranger to me. I know your failures. I know your struggles. I know your weaknesses. I know the hurt. I know the hurts that you can't even admit afraid to because others have hurt you you know there are very few people in this world who truly take the time to know us I mean just to know us to know who we are you have to allow people a way in to to let them know you and that's risky because you can be rejected right and here God is the one who knows everything about us he's already there I know everything about you have called you by your name. And then he says this, and this is number four. The question that he that he asks or that he answers is this, am I needed or wanted? And what does he say in verse one, you are mine. You are mine. Who am I? I'm a creation of God. Am I valued? I have redeemed you. Am I known? I know your name. Am I needed? Am I wanted? I own you. I own you. Do you ever feel unwanted? We all have at times, probably. Unappreciated. Nobody needs me. My life doesn't have that value. These are identity questions that God answers in this passage when he says, You are, you are mine. I own you. God claims ownership of his, of his people. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The foundation of the Lord stands sure, knowing this. The Lord knows them that are his. The foundation of the Lord stands sure, complete, finished, The Lord knows his people. The Lord knows them that are his. And he doesn't forget us. We belong to him. We are his possession. His precious possession. Think about that. You belong to God. Your life values. It matters. You're needed. You're wanted. God calls you his own. You're his own precious possession. We're called in the New Testament. We shouldn't be surprised if he purchased us then we belong to him. We have value and purpose to God. And and the point is this, that when we set the promise, the powerful promises of God from the hand of God right next to our problems, they seem to diminish. And we have to grip those truths. We have to believe those things. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, For I am... For I, am, I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. When I, when I weigh all the things that have happened in my life, none of them can hold a candle to the glory of God that's going to happen in the future. And God says, set that beside your problem. Set the glory of Christ next to the trial you're going through, and you tell me which one's going to persevere, which one's going to go forward. Which one's going to take it to the bank, if you will. And and it is the the promises of God. And over and over and over in Scripture we see this. God says, set me next to this and everything will diminish. How do we practically deal with trials and trauma? We set the promises of God next to them. It's that simple (laughs) in concept. It's hard to do when we're going through that. Because the world's constantly saying, you know what? This is what you need to do. You need to get even. You need to do this. You need to do that. And God says, forgive, trust, believe, rest. Let me work. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And that happens when we believe that. And so, number two. We see this in in verse two. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. God reminds his people of of something very important, that his presence in our life is more valuable than the absence of problems. Think about that for a second. It's a mouthful. That God's presence in your life is more powerful or more valuable or more treasured than the absence of problems. Let me put it this way. Would you rather have a life um, free from problems, or thinking, well, this sounds sounding good, free from problems, free from trials, but without God? Or would you rather have a life filled with problems and the guarantee Of God's presence. It doesn't take us long to figure out which one is is going to be best. You see, the presence of God in the times of difficulty is to be much preferred over the absence of problems and and the absence of God. If God is present with problems, you're far further ahead than if God is absent without problems. I've got you thoroughly confused right now. But listen to his promise. He didn't say, you're not going to pass through the waters. He said, when, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will abandon you. I'll leave you on your own. You're going to sink like a rock. No. He says, I will be with you. Someone once told me, he says, you know, pastor, I don't understand. What kind of a God would, would, would lead his people into problems? You know, w- w- would allow problems to come along. You know, I said, the kind of God who says, I will walk through those problems with you. Would you rather uh, go through life with no problems and no God, or would you rather go through problems, the problems of life with God? I'm telling you what, I'd rather go through the problems of life with God. Any day. As they say, and twice on Sunday. Absolutely. Because the promise of God's presence in our life is far more treasured than the absence of problems. The presence of God, listen, in Scripture, the presence of God is always accompanied by the power of God and the provision of God. It is. We, we talked about it. I mean, Psalm 23, you know that. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil because I got a big rod and a staff. You know? Oh, fear no evil for thou art with me. In other words, bring it on. Or in Exodus 17, I love this story, three months off after crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, imagine that. The Egyptian army, you know, collapsed and drowned, and, and you, they're wandering in the desert, and, and they camped in Rephidim. This is Exodus 17. They camped in Rephidim according to the commandment of the Lord. They were in the will of God, and there was no water to drink. Wait, wait, what? They were in the will of God, and there was no water to drink. And the, so the people there prayed and said, Lord, we know that thou hast delivered us through the blood of the Passover lamb and taken us to the promised land. And we know you will deliver us from this. No. They bickered and griped and complained against Moses. Why? And God says, Moses, take the, take the rod, the rod that Aaron struck the river, Aaron's rod that you struck the river with, and, and stand in front of the people, and I will be there before you. And strike the rock and water will come out. And what a beautiful display of of obstacles and problems and God's power and his provision in the face of obstacles. Why? Because he guaranteed his presence with us. Listen, we can face anything in this life if we are convinced that God is with us. And I want to tell you what. There is nothing in scripture that limits God's ability to be omnipresent with us. Nothing at all. It's all, he's always there. He's all, in your darkest thought, your deepest hurt, your most sincere private moment, God is there. And if God is there, there is power, there is provision all the time, every time. There is all, he is always there and it's always accompanied by power and provision. The hand of God is mighty. We see this anthropomorphism, this this picture of God's hand, meaning it's a supply, it's a protection, it's a direction, it's a correction, you know, it's a creation. God's hand is used in various ways in scripture. But God's hand is full of provision and power. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. That's interesting. You know, written 700 years before Christ came, and 400 years later, we have, we have you know, Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the, the three in the fiery furnace, and the flames didn't scorch him or touch him, and there was a fourth one, like unto the Son of Man. And the presence of God brings power and brings provision when you think you're going to die and be burned up, or you think you're going to drown. In, 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 in Isaiah 43, those pictures of being drowned and being fires are all encompassing. Meaning from these parameters, from the watery death to the fiery death and everywhere in between. So you tell me, where's your trial? Where's your struggle? Where is it outside of those realms? No, it's not. Because both of those start and begin with, with death and end with death. But God says, I will be with you. I will be there with you during those times. And the presence in your life is a guarantee of of having more treasure than the absence of the problems. I love the picture of God being with us. You know, God's trials may seem overwhelming, but they are refining, not consuming. God's trials may seem overwhelming, but they are refining. They're, they're, they're refining us into the image of Christ. They're not consuming us. And that's his promise. And then finally this morning, um, in verses 8 through 13, God's purpose for your life is greater than your problems. God's purpose for your life. And ultimately we have the answer, what is God doing? And there's this courtroom scene um, that begins in verse 8. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. And there's a couple ways um, scholars look at this passage. It's either Israel who is disobedient, and God's saying disobedient Israel has more good to say about me than anyone else. Or it's the unbelieving de- uh, deaf and blind that God says, why don't you bring out the blind who have eyes and the deaf who have ears and let all the nations be gathered and let the people be assembled and who among them can clear this? Show us the former things. Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is truth. In other words, you bring out the best that you can choose in this life apart from God, and I'll bring out you, he says. I'll bring out my witnesses who know my power, my strength, my provision. Now we'll judge who is the greatest one in this land. And, And God is making the point. There is no other God, only that which is created in the minds of other people that which people worship or try to worship, that's God with a little g. There's only one sovereign, and it is Yahweh. There's only one supreme, it is the God of heaven. He says, let's have a courtroom. Let's decide this by trial. You bring out your witnesses, and I'll bring out you. And I could say that to every one of you, couldn't I? I could say, you come up here, and you tell me how God has worked in your life, and we could stand here for a weeks and weeks as you tell me God worked through this, God worked through this, God worked through this, God did this, and then he did that. You can testify to that. And that's the purpose of trials, is to bring glory to God. Look in verse, real quick, in verse 21. We'll stop here. This people I have formed for myself, we're back to creation. Why? That they may declare my praise. Friends, that's what God is doing in your life through trials. That's the purpose, to bring glory and honor to him. He is allowing those things. He is even ordaining those trials as a purpose of not consuming you but refining you that you can sing out to the glory and praise of God. And didn't we see that in worship today? Our people, even young people, standing up and singing praise to God and saying, God is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my creator. He is my redeemer. He knows my name. And I am his. And friend, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough for this life. Let's pray together. Father, all oh, the word of God is deep and rich. And Lord, you, um, you just allow us to, and ask us to set um, your glory, your majesty, your promises alongside our experiences. And you say, my precious child, what has happened to those things? And Father, they just diminish in your sight. They diminish when we allow you to hold us in your hand. Help us, Lord, to cling by faith to the precious promises of God, to walk by faith and not by sight, to bring glory and honor to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care, and God bless.